a pastor was scheduled to speak at the town hall, and since it was a beautiful day, he decided that he would just walk from his hotel. But he soon discovered he was lost, and he had to ask a neighborhood boy for directions. Well, the little boy was kind of inquisitive, and he wanted to know, well, what are you going to do there? Well, I'm going to give a lecture on how to get to heaven. Would you like to come along? No thanks, the boy answered. You can't even get to the town hall. <laughs> that might describe many Christians. We know there's truth. We know, you know, we believe. But do we know the way? And can we articulate that way to others? Now, we've arrived at the last of our seven sessions looking at the Apostles' Creed. For those of you that grew up in a church tradition where you recited that, probably every week like I did, I hope that this has kind of renewed your understanding of the biblical truths that undergird the creed, and that maybe it's moved from what you, and for most of us it became just a rote recitation, to now more a meaningful thing in our lives. Uh, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the creed and you didn't grow up with that, I hope it's giving you an appreciation for the timeless truths that God has given us that's been stated such in that creed and been preserved for us through all those centuries. For all of you, I hope and pray that you've come to realize how important it is to know what you believe, to know how to articulate what you believe, and also how the Apostles' Creed has helped believers understand historic Orthodox Christian faith for 16 to 1800 years. In just 109 words, you have a concise, exacting summary of the essence of the Christian faith. So I'm going to ask as we get started, if you want to, to just join me in stating the creed where we've gone so far. Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. But from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. From your look, I must have messed up somewhere, right? That's okay. I only, I only said it a gazillion times growing up. The final three elements of the creed have to do with what I think is the reign of God throughout eternity. And though they all relate to the experience of believers, over, under, beside, and through it all is God's sovereign, gracious work. So the next thing the creed affirms is the forgiveness of sins. Now, folks, this is a real biggie. This is, this is worth the price of admission today. Um, this truth, forgiveness of sins, sets Christianity apart from all the other great religions of the world. Whether it's Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Confucianism or whatever. Because in none of those other religions is there a provision for forgiveness. Their heaven, however defined, is achieved, they teach, only by self-effort and succeeding in self-righteousness. 
And here's where the central truths of Christianity set themselves apart. So let's think about a number of things this morning. The first is the need for forgiveness. There are two realities that we have to bring into focus when we think about this. The first thing is the absolute holiness of God. Isaiah the prophet was given a vision from God, and in that vision he was transported into the presence of God, to the very throne of God. And there he saw the Lord seated in all his glory. And here is what the angels attending him were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. If you'll study the character of God, one thing you will learn is that the central feature of God's attributes is his holiness. A.W. Tozier, one of my favorite authors, writes, Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. The consequence of that is that God must rightfully judge everything, all that stands opposite of that standard, anything that doesn't conform to that standard, anything that violates this standard of absolute purity and holiness and perfection. So on one hand, here we've got the holiness of God. The other side of it is the utter sinfulness of man. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul presents in a stinging indictment the case against mankind. And what he does is he does this through the religious Jew as the defendant, representing the best that mankind has to offer. And so quoting from the Old Testament Psalms, he writes, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Wow, that is, that is ugly. That is damning. And Paul concludes by saying in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the question I'm sure that's got to come up to some people in their mind is, well, can it really be that bad? Do we really have to be so severe in our judgment? Well, first of all, it's God's judgment, not mine, not yours. You know, God's character of holiness is the standard, not our opinions, not our wishful thinking, not our self-justifying hopes. Secondly, this doesn't mean that people are incapable of doing good things. There are many who lead exemplary lives, who do many generous uh, good things in their lives, but, but they're insufficient. They're, they're even worthless in dealing with the just consequences of our sin. Isaiah the prophet gives us God's assessment of all of our good works as a means of right standing before him when he says that all of our righteousness, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. So even if our good works cannot avert God's judgment, we're lost. There's no hope in ourselves. You may be thinking about, now give it a rest, would you? <laughs> Enough already. But you see, if there remains the tiniest thread of hope 
that I can do something on my own to avert God's judgment, to justify myself, then I either do not understand how lost I am or I negate the value of Christ's sacrifice for sin. It's that bad. Now what about the basis of forgiveness? There's an old hymn in which this question is asked and answered, who can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 in the New Testament says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God, who is absolutely holy, declared from the beginning the consequence of sin. And so to Adam in the garden, he said, you guys may eat of all the fruits of the trees in the garden, but you may not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree. And the day in which you eat, the day in which you disobey me, that's the day you will die. And Adam and Eve ate in disobedience, in independence from God, disregarding his command, and they died. Not only did physical death begin into, into this creation of God, but more consequentially, spiritual death began. Remember, the essential definition of death is separation. In physical death, the soul separates from the body. In spiritual death, there's separation from the presence of God. In the New Testament, Paul affirms this truth when he writes in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. Now here's the wonder of it all, and we've already discussed this in the creed to this point. Paul tells us that Jesus died in our place. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that Jesus was literally made sin for us. Why did he do that? He did it that we might know him, that he might bear the judgment that rightfully should fall on you and on me. Now, there are some conditions then that come into play here for forgiveness. Again, two sides. One is on the divine side, the divine action. God's sovereign grace is given to the believing sinner. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes that God has forgiven our sins according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us. So God is the prime mover in this whole thing. But then there's a human response that's also involved. Some of it's a mystery. I can't put it all together in a nice little basket for you because it, you know, it's confusing at times. It's difficult to, to, in one sense, God does it all, but yet he involves us in the process. And with that involved, there's three key words, three key concepts. The first is repentance. That's a word I think that's often misunderstood. I grew up kind of in my church thinking that, that repentance is getting down on your knees and begging God to forgive you. But that's really not that, what that word means. It means to simply turn away. Turn around. What am I doing? I'm turning away from any attempts at self-effort to save myself because you can't do it. It involves a turning away from the direction that you're going and a turning back to God and what he offers you. Repentance. Then there's confession. Confession is simply agreement about God with our sin. as consequences. It's agreement about Jesus and what he did on the cross for you. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, that is to be declared right, 
and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repentance, confession, now here's the third one, acceptance. Acceptance. This is the response of faith. Accepting, receiving God's grace and the provision for your sin, for forgiveness. Faith, in its most basic sense, is the believing of God's promises. Paul illustrates this with the example and experience of Abraham. Faith that claims God's promises as the acceptable response to God's grace. And so in Romans chapter 4, he writes, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What was the promise? Well, God promised Abraham a son. Even though his wife Sarah was barren, and both of them were advanced age, and Abraham simply believed that promise. And here's how he responded to God. Paul continues in Romans 4 and says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. There is a believing aspect of faith, and there is a receiving aspect. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told about the prodigal son? The younger one who got his share of the inheritance and he went off to a foreign country and there he squandered it until he was at the end of his rope. He, he even hoped to eat of the food that he was feeding pigs, the only job that he could get. And finally he came to his senses and he thought, here's what I'm going to do. Even my father's servants have enough food to eat. I will go back, there's repentance, turning around, and I will say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and you. There's confession. He says, I'm not worthy to be your son. Just treat me as one of your slaves, one of your hired hands. And so the young man goes back and he says just that. His loving father, who has been waiting and watching for his son's return, graciously receives his son back. And he declares this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's celebrate. The son had repented. He had confessed. <laughs> One thing still required, he had to receive. He had to be willing to receive from his father what the father offered him in his grace. The need for forgiveness, the basis of, the conditions for and now the experience of forgiveness. What does God do in forgiveness? What are some of the consequences when God forgives? Well, the first thing is that God cancels the debt. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. For those who owed a debt, they could not pay. And because of Jesus' death for sin, God cancels out the debt of sin. Look how Paul puts it in his letter to the Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, and here's how he did it, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If a debt is canceled, there is no longer any responsibility to pay, now or in the future. The slate is clean. Here's the second thing God does. He removes the guilt. When Isaiah the prophet saw himself in light of the holiness of God, he confessed his sin. The angel of the Lord said to him, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. You see, guilt is real. It's not a matter of guilt feelings. It's a matter of objective guilt. You and I are in the wrong. But in forgiveness, God takes that guilt away. That fact is forever altered in forgiveness. And God does one more thing. He restores the relationship. The Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, does this mean that God just has a convenient memory lapse? No, I don't think so. The idea in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament is that he no longer takes our sins into account in relationship to our standing before him. In other words, they no longer dictate the condition of our relationship to him. Everything about our relationship changes. Look what Paul writes in Romans 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We stand face to face with God in a state of peace, a relationship of peace. No longer an enemy because of sin, but a friend because of grace. Now, a couple important points by way of conclusion on forgiveness here. Our forgiveness is to be accepted on the basis of fact, not feelings. We must accept the fact of forgiveness because God has declared it so, not because you feel forgiven. I think that's obvious, but how often do we struggle with living as free people, as forgiven people, because we don't feel free? We don't feel forgiven. And how often do we try to manufacture feelings of forgiveness rather than accept by faith that God has forgiven us because of Christ? My guess is that there are some of you here who really struggle to accept that you're forgiven. There's something in your past, something that you have done that haunts you at times, producing a sense of shame and remorse, feelings that argue against the reality of forgiveness. Here's my challenge to you. You must decide which you will believe. The feelings of your past or the fact of God's word. It's just really simple as that. Am I going to believe the way I feel? Am I going to believe what God says? It's going to come down to that. The second thing I would say is that God's forgiveness is the basis for and the model of the forgiveness that we need to grant to others. Paul writes, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So we see that forgiveness is based upon Christ's work. Because God has forgiven us, and Jesus died for our sins, we too here must forgive others. We can forgive others. Secondly, forgiveness is unconditional. It comes with no strings attached, just like the marvelous work of God's grace. 
And this is why we must be willing to grant to others forgiveness when they wrong us. And thirdly, forgiveness is based upon the one forgiving, not the object of the forgiveness. Our forgiveness that we experience flows from a holy God full of grace and mercy. Our forgiveness of others must also flow out of our heart who have been forgiven much. And so we affirm together with the authors of the creed the forgiveness of sins. The creed goes on to affirm the resurrection of the body. If you've got a Bible, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? If you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1222, what many call the resurrection chapter of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll pick up at verse 12. Paul writes, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, a euphemism for dying, those who are dead in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The whole point is because Jesus was raised from the dead, the promise of your resurrection is certain. And because Jesus experienced a bodily resurrection, you and I also will experience a bodily resurrection. Now, our resurrection will occur when Jesus returns for those who have believed in him. It's an event that we call the rapture of the church. Would you just keep going in your New Testament a little bit further to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, page 1257. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. This is often a passage that, that, uh, that we, we want to read uh, in a, a memorial service or funeral service for someone who's died in Christ. It's a great promise. First Thess chapter 4, and I'm going to pick up at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep, who've died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So this event is coming where we're taken up to be with the Lord. But here's what happens to our body. Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. At that very moment, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
That's what awaits us. That's why we affirm in the creed the resurrection of the body, a physical bodily resurrection, one just like Jesus. The creed concludes with a statement of belief about the future. Now, before looking at the eternal prospect for believers, I must comment on the future of those who do not believe. Because the Bible is very clear that life does not end with physical death. There is a debt to be paid, a debt that is owed, a debt of eternal conscious separation from God. There are a variety of words used in Scripture about this separation, words like darkness, eternal torment, a terrifying day of judgment. Words really cannot describe what will be an eternity separated from God, from everything that is good, that is pure, that is satisfying. That, that's, the, that's the destiny that is there for those apart from Christ, for us when we didn't know Christ. Now, for those who have believed in Christ, there's several things, there's wonderful things. There's the gift of eternal life. And so Paul writes that God saved us so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And with that comes the security of eternal life. Jesus, in John 10, described himself as the good shepherd. And he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Our tendency, and certainly the way that I grew up and what I, what I, what I kind of thought I knew and heard was to think of eternal life as pie in the sky when you die. You know, is something out there. But there's a, a greater, more significant reality than that. John chapter 5 records this. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. You see what Jesus is saying? The moment that you put your trust in him, the moment that you said, I cannot do it, I will trust in Jesus, I will believe in the work that he's done for me, at that very moment, you became a possessor of eternal life. You have eternal life now. It's present. Now, two things for you to think about with eternal life. Think quality, not quantity. Jesus gives us some insight into the real nature of eternal life. In, in his high priestly prayer to the Father the night he was betrayed, and he said this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, who have you said. That's eternal life. It's the quality. It's knowing God. It's knowing Jesus. One other thing. Think timelessness, not time. I think many Christians think eternal life, how boring. Why? Because they can only imagine life in human history going on and on and on and on and boringly on. But I think that's a misunderstanding of eternity. Remember, time was an invention of God. God created time. He created time when he created the universe. And, and Revelation chapter 21 tells us that in heaven there will be no light, night. There will only be day because we, everything will be lit up by the sun, not the S-U-N, but the sun, S-O-N, is very present. We'll live in the eternal present. What a glorious future awaits those who've trusted in Christ, forgiven, 
And we'll experience a resurrected body just like Jesus. We'll put off the mortal body. We'll put on immortality. And we will live in the eternal present. Wow. Now, don't ask me to tell you what that all means. I don't know. I just know what we do know and what we can see. I believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So here we are at the end of the creed. Wow. Some of you are so glad. But we're going to end the creed this way, and I will ask you this question and invite you to join me. This time we'll get it right. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead and sitteth in the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Did I do it again? Where did I blow it? Oh, I guess he's got to get there, doesn't he? Okay. Let's, let's pick it up where he ascended into heaven. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And everybody finish with... Amen. Thank goodness we're done, some of you are saying. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great affirmation of faith and these central tenets of orthodox faith that we might know what's important in what we believe. And so I pray that you would, over the course of time, just continue to bring these things back to us. Remind us of how important it is that what we believe matters and what we believe must conform to your truth. And so we thank you for the creed. We thank you for your word that undergirds every statement in the, in the creed. And we bless you for not leaving us clueless, but letting us know from your word who you are, who we are, and how you want us to live. So we're grateful for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.